amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 12, Episode 10, Jim Cominti, Part 2. This week, we heard the second hour of Bob and Jim's conversation. Now, they're still tending to disagree on this, but they're starting to find common ground. They discuss different targets. They discussed different motives this week. I know I have my opinions. Janet, I'm sure you have your opinions as well. I absolutely do. And of course, as usual, we have a bunch of great thoughts and questions from our listeners. So as usual, I'm joined with Bob. And after this, we will hear Bob's interpretation of everything going on, as well as listener questions right after this break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alrighty, so uh, before we get started on the content for today's episode, I want to get uh, thoughts from both Janet and Zach, and we've got a ton of listener questions. Uh, I want to remind everybody that today is the last day to order your uh, Test the Evidence West Memphis 3 shirts. Uh, we have done very well as far as the sales. We had a, a goal to raise $2,500 to pay for the expert witness, and I said I'm donating all profits to uh, the defense fund for any you know appeals or to roll into actual testing. And as of now, we have, I believe it's hard to tell with the fees and stuff, but I think we have doubled that number already. We've sold uh, hundreds of shirts. So thank you all who have bought the shirts. Uh, make sure uh, when you get them and, and our, our t-shirt, Betsy, our t-shirt lady has said that she will have them in your hands by the 20th. The hearing is the 23rd. Make sure that you um, post on social media, use hashtag test the evidence, hashtag WM3, and use hashtag truth and justice army if you have space. Um, but let's get all that tr trending with pictures of the t-shirts. Uh, if you're going in person, of course, you can wear those outside. But I do want to make one thing clear that you cannot wear the shirts inside the courthouse. So if you are going to Memphis for the hearing, uh, first of all, it's just you shouldn't wear a shirt with a profanity on it into a courthouse anyway. Secondly, they probably wouldn't let you, uh, but also not a great idea to have anything that is, um, and I don't think they'll even allow it, um, anything that's promoting one side or the other in a courthouse. So they probably wouldn't let you wear that anyway. So if you have the shirt, 
you if you want to wear it outside to stand, you know, we all stand together. I would love to get like pictures with everybody with a bunch of people outside. Um, but make sure that if you're going, if you plan to go into the courthouse, that you have something respectful of the court to wear inside of the courthouse. And I'll put that on social media too, but just wanted to make that clear. I spoke with one of Damien's attorneys the other day about like attire in the courthouse and stuff. And, uh, the other shirts cannot go inside. So other than that, um, again, you got a couple more days to get them ordered and the shirt should be in your hand soon. Also, I'll point out, I guess why I'm on the air here, a few people, and I don't think they're all our listeners. But a few people have like ordered shirts and then like it's like linked the company that we sell the, 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 the website that we sell them through is called Big Cartel and the, the payments are processed through Stripe. And then somehow my email is attached to it. So I've got a couple of emails where people have like bought shirts and they're like, hey, I need to cancel my order or change my order. I can't do that because I tried to go in and like find track down an order. And from my end, I cannot. Once you have processed your payment and fees and all that stuff through. Stripe and all that, they've taken everything out and the post it like I it's out of my control at that point. So if there's a way to do it through them, go for it. I can't fix it from my end. I'm just not able to do that. So just so you guys know that. And with that being said, and also um by the end of this month, we'll be putting up another shirt for sale. It'll just be just a fun shirt for us. Um uh, we'll do the same type of thing, a pre-sale, and the, and those funds just go in towards helping fund our work here that we're doing here. Um, but all of the West Memphis three stuff all goes directly to Damien's attorneys. That being said, this episode, what'd you guys think? I think it's a great conversation. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I understand the reasons for putting it out in three pieces, obviously, you know, usually having an hour long episode. Um, it makes, it's a natural to use three separate hours for three separate episodes. And I also know that there's a lot going on behind the scenes and that these episodes are crucial to that preparation. Uh, but it is hard to immediately want to hear that final conversation as it was difficult to hear right. just a piece of it. The first episode that you aired of this conversation with Jim, uh, particularly because, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know a ton about the case. And there are things that I think we've all talked about. And I think you'll see that in the, in the viewer responses, things that we've talked about so much that there's a, a bit of a level of confidence with uh, some stuff that I think he's, you know, he in this part of the conversation, maybe he doesn't totally understand yet or doesn't, you know, have a sense of or a background on. So we'll have some some really good responses from from listeners about some of those pieces that people have questions about. One of the things that really jumped out at me, and I was surprised that there weren't uh, a ton of comments on this that came at least across my desk, uh, was this story about Denny's, was the story about the friend or the roommate uh, of perhaps Jacob mm -hmm. Who came in and yelled at her and that it was thought that it was Robert or Robert's friend. Can you tell us any more about that or will that be a future episode? Yeah, well, we're going to get into it in depth when we go. So a lot of people are asking a ton of questions and I kind of weeded some of them out here that are asking about specific suspects. And we're just as part of my process, part of my process with Jim and our process collectively is to, you know, we try to figure out the crime scene, what happened in the crime scene. And then from there, try to profile the crime scene and get an idea of the type of people we might be looking for. Then we go through each suspect individually and we're going to get into more of those, those stories. But this is one that jumped to my attention early because uh, in like the crime watch daily or some TV episode, 48 hours, somebody that did an episode on the case, they said that Robert the day before or two days before had gone into Denny's 
and got into an altercation with Becky there, uh, which they use as, you know, damning evidence towards Robert. And it was pointed out to me by some people connected to the case that it wasn't Robert. And I did, you know, I started to do some research to verify that. And it was very easily verifiable that it wasn't Robert. It was Jacob, who is uh, Becky's, the boyfriend she just broke up with. It was his roommate, a guy named um, Austin Alba, who went into Denny's that day and had the altercation. We'll get into all those details, um, but it was one, it it, it, it kind of fell in the category of I want to get into when we start to talk about suspects, but it was necessary information for Jim to have as far as risk factors are concerned. So this isn't something we've learned about and I just missed somehow. No. Because this seemed new to me. I didn't know anything. No, I wasn't intending to talk about it until we get into suspects and walking through everybody's days that you know had any connection to any of the victims but it was something that i think needed to be pointed out to jim and so you know we jumped ahead a little bit i also real quick before i get into yours zach one point a few people were like a little frustrated because it seems like maybe we're, jim and i are kind of going in circles a little bit and we're just we're working through our process in what we used to do if i had jim come on to do a profile is we'd have a long conversation and then he would figure out his profile then we'd hit record and he'd come on and deliver his profile. And what we always ended up doing afterwards is like, man, we should have hit record at the beginning and let people hear how this process works. So you're hearing a lot of stuff that would be like preliminary stuff normally. Leading This final episode would be the episode that you would, you would normally hear that's just him kind of delivering his profile, me, mine, us comparing them, and then taking that profile and comparing it to all of the known persons of interest is what you're going to hear in, in the last one. But I'll tell you this, that this case is particularly difficult because in order to get a good solid profile, you ha- you're, what we're doing is we're analyzing behavior that was exhibited on the crime scene. In order to do that, you have to know what happened on the crime scene. And we're always, most cases, usually able to figure out, okay, after all this analysis, we think. This is how the crime went down. They did this, then this, then this, then this, then this, and therefore the profile is fill in the blank. In this case, the case is so complex, and I was and I was hoping for that big, you know, Jim Clemente light bulb moment where he's like, "Well, this is what happened," uh, because and as you're hearing, we don't really get that, so we end up with two possible scenarios, which leads us to two possible profiles. He leans one way, I lean the other. But the issue there, the reason there's still some ambiguity there is because we haven't been able to clearly identify what actually happened at the crime scene. That being said, before we get into listener questions, Zach, what were your thoughts? I I thought it was really nice to be a fly on the wall for this conversation. I, for one, and I I vocalized this to you earlier, I did feel like you guys are going in circles. I mean, that's probably why you addressed it, because I'm one of the people that did feel like you guys were going in circles. It's, It's a weird conversation to be part of. You know, just to be a fly on the wall, because there's so many times that I personally wanted to jump in and be like, what are you guys talking about? Why are, why are we doing this? Um, so I'm excited to hear the third part. It's still very interesting to me to kind of hear you guys continue to disagree on things, even though there are certain aspects that you guys have come to common ground on, which is what I was talking about in the opening, is that you've, you've kind of discussed motives for the individual targets. Right. And I feel like you guys have common ground on those, but you don't have common ground on what you who you actually think the target may have been. Right. So I'm I'm really interested to move forward and kind of see where we go from here. This third part it is gonna be a big thing for me, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of the one we've all been waiting for. And it's this is a tricky situation because you gotta remember that Jim trained me 
to do this type of analysis. So you have my mentor and me discussing something, and this is really the first time because of the methodologies he's taught me, we generally end up in the same place. And I, I was, I was talking to both Zach and, um, and Janet, uh, in the pre-show for Patreon about this a little bit, that part of the reason we keep going back in circles is because I keep trying to, I re-listened to the episode because I was like, I want to make sure I'm not like ignoring you know, that, that, that I'm being closed minded, that I'm trying to hear, but that's why I, I keep bringing it back because I, he keeps kind of explaining what he thinks in my brain, just like, yeah, but I, you know, for example, you know, he says, uh, you know, they spent more time with Becky and, and, and I'm like, but I don't know if he, they did spend more time with Becky. That comes back to the fact that we still have a pretty convoluted crime scene and it makes it more difficult for us to know what happened. So it's, it's kind of like our, analysis is it's more of like an if then so if this is what happened then we probably would both be here if this is what happened then we probably would both be here but we don't know which one of those two actually happened so let's go ahead and let's let's jump into listener questions well a lot of people had sort of the same reaction you did bob where they felt like the timeline is still in question and what actually happened is still in question and so we'll hear some of that as we get into these questions, uh, I want to start with CJ, who just as a general kind of let's discuss a number of perpetrators question says, is there anything other than two weapons that drives Bob and Jim towards more than one perpetrator? Is there some piece of crucial evidence we haven't heard yet? No. So I've heard people say that, well, it's certainly possible that someone could carry a shotgun and a pistol. And that is true. One person could do that. But we're, what we're seeing is a bifurcation of behaviors. For starters, before we even get into that, you know, we're, we're looking at behaviors in the crime scene. And, I'll, and I will say, yes, it is possible there was only one. But you look at the proximity that John and Vicky were killed in. You know, they're, they're, they're a few feet away from each other. Laundry room, kitchen, they're right there. Boom, boom. The idea of somebody using two different weapons in that scenario is highly unlikely to me. So like I could see having the two guns, like having a pistol on your hip and carrying a shotgun. But in that case, you think they come in, use the shotgun for both and the pistols, kind of a backup, not use the shotgun for one, put the shotgun down, grab the pistol. And it's not wild, wild west or not, you know, one handing the shotgun. And then they got the pistol in the other hand and they're boom, boom shooting with, with two like that. Well, I think you keep assuming that, that because of physical location, this happened at the same time too. We we, right. we can't necessarily assume that just because they're physically located close to each other that it happened at the same time. They sure. could have came in and shot John and then went and got Vicky. Right. That's so true. I mean, there's there's a lot of things like that that I think we have to be open minded about. Yeah, and and that and that leads that that leaves us that door open where I say it's possible, but from what we see, you know, I see I see what looks like two people coming in. John shot at a little bit of a distance. Yeah, you know, we figured from probably about ten feet away, uh, ten to fifteen feet away, where Vicky is grabbed and shot point blank in the head. Uh, and then you have the different behaviors on the you know you've got the the very carefully placed set points of the fire in the house, and then you have which is you know used to conceal the the crime in there. But then you have you know no no accelerant poured on the bodies, but then you have accelerant poured on on Becky's body. It just, it just seems like a lot for one person to do. The two weapons obviously is a is a big indicator. The two weapons used on two victims in the house is the biggest indicator. 
Um, but certainly the possibility is there that there was only one. I just personally find it unlikely. The shell casings being missing too is a big thing for me because I can't, I don't know. I don't know how many listeners have actually shot guns. It's not easy to find a shell casing, right? Especially if you're indoors where it, it, they can hide, they can get under something. Right. So for them to be not present is, is very strange for me because even somebody sophisticated, would lose one. Right. Especially so the 40 caliber blast. So the shotgun, we don't know what type of shotgun it could be, which could, if you're, if you're one of those people that leans towards a single offender, could be a, a double barrel or an over under shotgun where you have two shots and they don't eject and they don't eject. They stay in the gun. So boom, boom. And then they got to go to the pistol. That's a possibility. Again, I don't particularly find that likely, but it's certainly a possibility. But the, but the 40 caliber is going to be a semi-automatic, which means when you fire the gun, the, sh- the casing is going to eject out. But the other part, and that's a, and Jim made a great point about policing your brass, which means to pick up your your shell casings. That that is something some military law enforcement would do. Also, I had that's not a question you have there, Janet. But some people have asked me, like, why didn't you tell Jim that Becky's dad was former law enforcement? We get there, but I, but I work very hard to not give Jim that information because I don't want it to bias his interpretation of the crime scene. So that's why I intentionally didn't tell him during this this part of the episode. Uh, but the other thing is, it's also possible that the casing or casings were there and just weren't found. Now, they should, especially in a homicide, when they're sifting and, and the, the arson investigator DeHart talks about them sifting through the, they should, like, normally it would be, like, if they're using heavy equipment like they were, that they would scoop and then literally would go through every single bit, every sh- every every shovel full of debris in the, you know, the excavator. Before they dumped it. I've never, I guess I've done a couple with excavators um, where we've done that, but usually it's with shovel and it is a painstaking process. A lot of times we're looking for small electrical components to because re- we'll rebuild an electrical system to see if there was a short, but we'll literally shovel a scoop full of just looks like ashes and then we'll have a, our, our dirty pile where we'll take it over there and sift through little, every little granule to find out what's there. And I would imagine that they did that around the bodies, which would indicate that the brass was policed. Or picked up, but certainly we can't assume that it wasn't just missed either. So once again, the fire actually potentially did hide evidence and made the whole thing more confusing. Right. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. A lot of chat in the YouTube happening live right now, people weighing in and again going kind of back and forth on this idea of how much time was spent with Becky. You were talking about that, of course, earlier in your comments with Jim. Jody says, this is more of a comment than a question. 
Jim C. said that they treated Becky differently and spent more time with her. That isn't necessarily the case. A potential scenario is that the struggle with Becky was in the house. She ran out back to get away, and the unsub shot her from the house as she ran, fitting with a potential shot to the lung, as one fan discovered, which we talked about last week. The lead may have gone through and through, uh, away from the house property, making it difficult to find. Under the scenario, the unsub was in or near the house still, grabbed the gas, or one already had it in hand as they were setting the house on fire. One went out there to put her in the wheelbarrow to set her on fire. They shot the two in the house, left them, and set the house, and thereby thereby the people in it, on fire. The treatment of Becky is basically the same. They shot her as she was running away, left her there, set her on fire. It's not really any special treatment if that's where she happened to be shot. It would have taken more time and effort to bring her back to the house. And I know Marie Osprey had said something similar. And again, there's some some good stuff happening in the YouTube chat with, uh, I think, Susan and Lynn, uh, Valeria, that every, everybody's kind of talking about this idea of, you know, did he spend more time? Did they spend more time with her? I, I tend to agree uh, that I don't think that they did. I mean, to me, there's nothing special that we see that was done with Becky's body. We don't see, because like, like Jim mentioned, you don't see with the bodies inside that like they were beat over the face or there, you know, there were, you know, fractures in the head and things that would indicate that they were beaten. Obviously wouldn't be able to tell if they were restrained or anything. So we don't know if they were, but with Becky, we don't see any of that either. Like I see her as being killed, what, you know, shot, stabbed. Some people have mentioned it could have been like a bag over the head, like asphyxiation that way. It's even possible that she was strangled, even though the hyoid bone you know, wasn't broken, that that doesn't always happen. There's no indication that she was strangled, but she could have been. But it seems like like she was killed, like all three victims were killed, and then a fire was set to hide evidence. I don't see anything different about hers other than the location. Well, I think that's a big part, though, is that's what where Jim is going with it a lot is the fact that she is separated that's where I feel that he's talking about the special treatment and the time is that she is separated. She's in a wheelbarrow. We don't know why or how she got there, but it, it that seems like special treatment over the other two victims. It, and it does. And that's one of the places where Jim and I differ. We, we don't really know what happened is the, the special treatment for her would be if she was killed out in the desert and then was put in the wheelbarrow and brought back to the house. That's spending a lot of a, a lot more time with her. Obviously, I don't. I really don't personally. I don't necessarily think that's what happened. But to the listener's point that just wrote that wrote that question, and the way I feel too is, even if that's the case, it was still a practical movement. It was still in an it, 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 with with the victims inside and the victim outside. It was we need to do something to hide evidence, uh, you know, with fire. It was more time, maybe, if they had to, it is more time if they had to move her body up there, but it was still not done because she was anything special. It was just done because they were trying to cover up evidence, the way I see it. Right, and I think that's something that Jim kind of comes back to. I mean, that's where I'm interested, and I'm sure you are too, Zach, um, about this third part of the conversation, because he does keep sort of circling back around over and over, both of you do, to this idea of the interruption and how being interrupted greatly informs the treatment of Becky's body. If they were interrupted, then everything is sort of on the table, right? Because if they were interrupted and they had planned to put her in the house and they couldn't and they had to set her on fire there, all of that stuff becomes a matter of practicality instead of some sort of presentational different treatment, right? Right. And I still have, and I said this in the episode, but I still have a hard time believing that if the interruption was, 
if if the intent with the wheelbarrow was to put her in the house, and then the interruption was as they come around the corner, they realize, oh crap, I see lights and sirens coming. Why the why then the reaction would be? I would think, and again, a lot of it is, and so Jim wants to go walk the crime scene with me too, but it's downhill. It's an easy path to the door. Like why, if that was the case, my my reaction I would think would be hurry up and get her to the house, dump her in there, and let's get out of here. Instead of stopping her, getting some accelerant, putting accelerant on her, and light her on fire right there, I just don't feel like they save time by doing that. If the intention was to get her to but the house, but do you think that it if when you are if they if somebody's holding the can and somebody's pushing the wheelbarrow, so you have everything you need right there, and you feel someone's coming, maybe that's the panic point, like where you say. Because right. we're going to take our can with us when we leave. We don't have time to do anything. We can't put the can in there. We can't put her in there. That's the reason that you don't see either in there, potentially. Mm-hmm. And so, and we also know that they didn't exit up through where the wheelbarrow tracks were found, right? Because that's where they were looking for footprints. So wherever they disappeared off to right. was not that path. So if if it was a matter of we don't have time to do anything, quick, 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 light it, go, because they're afraid that the fire that they've already set, like wherever they put her, isn't going to get to her quickly enough. Right. And, and, and if that's the case, that, uh, that again speaks, I think, to practicality, where it's not that there, she was, she she was special to them. It's just that that was the circumstances that they were left with. But even that, like I always, I, I try, I'm trying to see things from that perspective. And I always come back to like, like that. So, cause Jim mentioned that, well, what if they had the gas can with them? And it's like, well, if they had the gas can with them, why did they carry the gas can 200 yards out into the desert to get her to bring her back? Why wouldn't they leave the gas? Or then I guess a possibility would be they set the gas can down right where her, her body's found, go out to the desert, get her, bring her back. And then they get back to the gas can. They're like, I'll just light her here. I, that's a possibility. But I just have I am having a particularly difficult time with this case figuring out the reasons why decisions were made, especially if she was killed back in the desert. I just can't work through a scenario that makes sense in my mind if she was killed back there, which is why I keep coming back to. And keep, by the way, keep in mind, this is not some bias for me. It's not like one indicates Robert and Christian and one points the other way. Either either that you know they could be involved in either scenario. But I just I just don't see a scenario where that makes I can make that make sense in my mind. What I can make sense in my mind is her running out the back door and ending up right there by the wheelbarrow. They put her in it, light her on fire and get out of there. Um and again another indicator of two people if that scenario is what happened. Is if one's inside setting the fire in the house, the other one's like, okay, I'm going to douse her right here because I just tackled her and I left my DNA on her, so I'm going to li- I'm going to light her on fire right here. I, th- I think that 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 scenario makes I can make that scenario make sense. Also, another I, I don't think this is a question I gave you. Hopefully, I'm not jumping ahead of of where we're at. But somebody somewhere on social media or email had asked me, you know, why would she run out towards the desert? As opposed to, you know, know, if she was fleeing from inside the house, why wouldn't she just run to her car? Well, from what we're told from um, like Javier and other friends that were there, the back door was the main Mm. door they used. And if you look at the aerial photos of the crime scene, if she leaves the back door, the path to her car is the path she took. There's the path, even though it goes away out into the desert, 
from the bath door directly from there to where her car is at, there's that infinity. The other car is parked right there. There's a pine tree. That's where their little picnic area is. You have to go around all that stuff to get around to her car, which leads you on the path, right? So it didn't necessarily mean she was fleeing to get to the desert. If she was trying to get to her car, that's the path she would take to get to the car. I'm going to skip ahead to, um, I sort of had an order in mind, but I can't ignore the fantastic comments of what's happening in YouTube right now. So I'm going to circle back to some other ones. There is a lot of conversation happening about the time that Becky was supposed to be at work. And so I'd love to just jump in and address it because there's so much happening. I'm afraid if I don't, Mm -hmm. I will not be able to scroll back far enough. Lot of talk about how sure are we and why do we know? And we do have also a prepared question that Teresa sent in. So I'm going to sort of represent the group with this question. Why are we going with a 9 p.m. start for work? Is the source Eddie, the manager? In his interview, he said she worked graveyard, would probably be there about 8 or 9. Then as you close the episode, you mentioned he said maybe as late as 11 p.m. We hear graveyard from many people and we've heard about staggered shifts. If Eddie is the source, I'm curious why we're settling on 9. Why not 8 or 11? He says all of those. If she was due to work at 11, it's reasonable she would still be home at 9. Hopefully, YouTube chatters. I'm sort of summing up everything that you're talking about as well. The truth is we don't know. And Eddie presents a problem, right? Because as we've said, even though his memory is pretty vivid of it, uh, of the night that it was, you know, he remembers it because it was the night she was killed that she called and asked about uh, whether she could come in with a shirt. Or she needed to go back and get her shirt or come in without it. So working off of that, you know, when he says those graveyard shifts sometimes started at 8, sometimes 9, sometimes 10, sometimes 11. Well, we know that her body was actually lit on fire no earlier than 9.46 p.m., which means her her work shift could have started at 9 and she was late and so she, you know, if she was late for work, it's supposed to be there at nine. She could still be home if the, you know, we don't know. There there could be a time gap. People could have been killed, before, you know, an hour before the fire started. We don't know. I don't think we could say it was as early as eight because that would have been the call to Eddie came in at, you know, 730. That's still possible. But it, I don't think that it would have been 10 because. She was still, you know, in the window. I guess it could have been 10 because she would still be in the window when she could have made it down to work if she was going to be a little bit late. Um, but I think 11's out if Eddie is is the – if his information's accurate, she wouldn't have called him at 930 to tell him she's going to be late to an 11 o'clock shift. So the the one that makes the most sense – I think I said 9, but as I'm thinking about it out loud here, I think probably if his account is accurate, that 10 o'clock is probably – the most likely time when it started, if his account is accurate, okay. because if she's, if she's lit on fire by nine forty six or later, maybe she's killed it by nine 30. If she was, you know, on her way down and was supposed to be there at 10, she would have been late if she was still at the house. Cause it's, you know, a solid 30, 35 minutes to get down to work. So I think that's possible, but it's, it's, it's just, it's a question. It's a frustrating question that could have been easily answered by the investigators that day. And this isn't like a lens crafters situation. Everybody who follows Anant's case knows what I'm asking. Right. We, and we don't have her work records. We don't have like her time cards. Or to know what a standard shift was. To your knowledge, when was Eddie spoken to by the police? He was spoken to seven years later. So that's the soonest that he can recall this. So right. I mean, that's, that's a big gap. That's hard to. But I will say there were other Denny's employees that were 
interviewed and seemed to confirm his account of things. So I, I think a big thing, I mean, if we could find any corresponding phone records, I mean, that's, that would be, it would give us a good timestamp on when this began. Right. And that's what I'm working on when you came in that I'm working on now is figuring out whose phone numbers are whose. And I actually, I had a listener email me that used to work for Verizon that I sent some records to that are trying to help me determine what, cause there's some confusing things in there as far as, you know, there's like two phone numbers. One was the dialed number. One was the called number that's, they're trying to clear some of that up for me, but I'm hoping if we go through the mirage of all these phone records that we find a call to Denny's, it would clear some of that up. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go back to a, a little section uh, I'm calling motive, and I'm going to add in the word Ron to that and say, uh, let's start with Kristen Walsh Menser. Uh, this is more of a request than a question. Can you please clarify that as of now, we have no idea what the 175K was and if it even got paid? I keep seeing comments stating for a fact that it was Ron's pension and that led him to hire hitmen, which is a pretty heavy accusation. So this is also just a good moment for us at all. Remember, these are real people. Um, some people sort of, you know, understandably bristle a little bit at this. Right. Yeah. It, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we have no idea. I, I will agree that it's not confirmed. So th- this is what we have. We have John telling everybody at work that he has... $175,000, a large sum of money that he says very clearly is $175,000 coming in. He says, we've had a hard time getting it, but it looks like they're finally getting it now. And he says, you know, now the, the, the rub comes in because he says, um, they say that they, they think it's from like an inheritance, whatever it was, it was from Vicky's side. Uh, a lot of listeners have done some research and don't see that there was any indication that there was any kind of inheritance coming from anybody on Vicky's side. But so you have John telling them you have 175 grand coming. They've struggled to get it, but it's coming soon. Then we have John's ex, who seems to be very intimately familiar with the situation through the kids and through, it sounds like she was, she was close with Vicky, who says they got, you know, that, that, that Ron was supposed to pay his child support. She got a $10,000 installment the year before, which John then paid to her as back child support. And then Ron has been fighting in court trying to stop that payment coming through, uh, trying to stop having to pay, fighting, having to pay the rest of it. One thing we have is as far as so John's ex's credibility, she says he got 10,000. They got $10,000 from Ron as the first installment the previous fall. I went back, looked through bank records, and, and I believe it was October of that year, the year before. There's a ten thousand dollar. It was. It wasn't exactly. It was right around ten thousand dollars. We were able to see that it was a certified check or a cashier's check from Ron Friedley mm-hmm. to Vicky for ten thousand dollars, and that they then wrote a ten thousand dollar check to Cindy. So that's confirmed. That money came from Ron. Then they paid it to to the ex. So it lends to her credibility. She says Ron was fighting this, and I believe she says she thinks that they finally got it, it settled, and it was gonna. Be, it was going to be paid. So when we're so in this is why I say we can't say we have no idea. It's, you know, it very much looks like one plus one equals two. I will concede that we cannot be sure that that's what the what the money was for because we don't have and we're working on trying to find any court documents or anything that can confirm that. And again, that's something else the police should have. You start with the inner circle, you work your way out. 
this was when you heard Jim talking about it was another thing that was a little frustrating for me is, you know, he very good point does something that we're trained to do, which is what was accomplished by this. And for me, it's like, well, there's one very big glaring thing that was accomplished. I'm not saying that he's did it or that he was involved in it, but you can't ignore the fact that if all this information we have about this payout is accurate, the one thing that was accomplished was by her dying, he no longer had to pay out that money that was accomplished by the, by this crime. So yeah, it certainly is a possibility that somewhere else, but if that's the case, then, then we have to have some scenario where John is saying there's some big $175,000 payment coming that they're struggling to get, but that's not the big payment, which I think she called it a significant amount is what John's ex said. That's not the payment that she said they've been struggling to get through the lawsuit, but that there's money or that John is completely lying about that. Or, you know, there is, it's like, we've got to kind of jump through some hoops to make this peg and hole not fit. Okay. So my confusion with this is, is the fact of the quote unquote first installment. So if the court is mandating him to have a $10,000 installment payment to them, then why is there a big settlement? Wouldn't it just be a follow-up, a, a follow-up installment? That's what I'm trying to find. So it's, it's a quadro is the, is what we're thinking that it is, which is anytime there's a, fe- there's a government pension that has to be paid out to someone other than the person who was retired. Okay. And I, we don't know that those can be set up as lump sum payments. They can be set up to be paid out in installments. Now that the check came directly from Ron. So it seems like how it was set up was not that the, cause, cause sometimes these quadros are just used as like beneficiaries, like a death benefit for a pension, um, that it wasn't paid to Vicky from the retirement account. It was paid to Vicky from Ron. So however this worked out, it seems like he was responsible for paying the money to her okay. that, that he got. And, and I don't know for all, we just don't have enough information. So it could have said upon your retirement, you write her a check for 185 grand. And he's like, well, I'll give you 10 and I'm going to fight the rest or whatever. My guess is if there's any argument to be made to be, if there was some kind of clause there about, cause I've seen this before um, and I'm just speculating. I want to be clear. I'm speculating here. Um, that there could be a clause in there that says the money is paid to her as long as she hasn't remarried and she's with John for 10 years, but never marries him. And I've heard of instances and I've read recently because of this about instances where people will try to make the case that they didn't get married because of this money and that, uh, that they should be considered common law married. And they'll use that as an argument to try to fight paying the pension. So I'm, that's the only argument I could think one could make for why this was the agreement when the divorce was filed, but now things have changed and I shouldn't have to pay it. And again, that's pure speculation on my part, but I, I won't be shocked if we find out that that was the basis for the argument for not paying it. Got it. Well, Morgan said something very similar. He sort of echoes what you were just talking about. He says, can we go back to, I'm sorry, Morgan might be a he, she, or they. Morgan says, can we go back to the kiss method? Keep it simple, stupid. That being said, follow the money. And I'm just going to leave it sort of at that because we've just sort of talked about this idea of who benefits is the only benefit that we can see right now, right now, we don't know, we don't know, is the money. And so leaning in that direction, uh, Jackie asked about the circumstances of the divorce, if that's something that 
we need to worry about right now, but just, I think more about, we'll, what we'll get into what more the, of yeah. that and see what we can figure out. Um, when we get into suspects, I mean, all we know right now is what John's ex said, which was that it was a pretty cantankerous relationship between Vicky and Ron. And that she said that Ron had, um, she believed cheated on Vicky. And that was part of the reason or the reason for, for the divorce. Um, some people asked about like physical abuse or anything. I hadn't heard anything about that yet, but I haven't dug into that stuff yet either. So yeah, we'll see as we, as we move along. Yeah. That was a really interesting thing that you talked about with Jim too, where he was really kind of grilling you on, um, Becky's relationship with Ron. The only thing that flew into my mind as you guys were talking about that, because he said, how close, how bad was it? How close were they? And you gave the background on Chuck and everything was like, would she even be close enough for her father to know her schedule? Right. Okay, let's get back to the crime scene. Jason says, is it possible that Vicky was already on the ground when she was shot? Since it wasn't a through and through, is it possible the ground is what stopped the bullet from passing through? And also postulates, could this just be a home invasion gone wrong? And nobody was the intended target. Uh, regarding the first one, I don't think so. The, the, the ground wouldn't have stopped the bullet from penetrating the the scalp. You know, it it got wedged in between the scalp and the, and the skull. You may see where it like pushed through and it would be, it would look very different if the bullet was pressed against, you know, like, like broke through the skin, but was stopped by ground. It's that, that being said, doesn't mean she wasn't on the ground when she was shot. That's possible. And then what, what was the second part of the question? Uh, the second part was just going back to the bigger picture. Is it possible that this was just a home invasion gone wrong and no one was the target? Anything's possible, but it, it certainly doesn't look that way. It looks very much like, and Jim and I both agree on this, that this was a planned homicide. They, that the intention of the offenders here was to kill. There's no evidence that they a, had anything to steal or that anything was stolen. But again, the fire makes that difficult, you know. It's possible that there were things missing that were just burned up in the fire, but from what the family who kind of sifted through whatever was left doesn't seem like anybody thought anything was missing. Got it. Um, Just to return to the sort of fire and the way things played out for a second, Lynn says, is it conceivable the murders occurred, then the killers regrouped and returned to burn the house of any evidence they feared they left, so the murders and the fire were separated in time a little bit more than... Again, I, I know I keep saying this, but anything's possible, but I don't see that. It, the, the crime very much looks like it. Again, it's another thing Jim and I agree on. It looks very much like they were interrupted. Now, is it possible they were that they left and came back and then they were interrupted during the cleanup forensic countermeasures? It's possible. But again, if Eddie's uh, account of things is accurate, that throws a kind of a kink into that, too, because it seems like it all happened pretty close together. Right. But then there's also the possibility that, I mean, there's a million possibilities, it's a possibility that John and Vicky were killed. And then, you know, when the killers came back to burn the house, Becky showed up then and was killed later. They're all possibilities, but there's just, there's no evidence. I'll say there's no evidence to indicate that's what happened. Right. Sarah asks, uh, it, is the crime, would it, what would it look like if the killers were intending to kill all three? You know, we talked about isolating targets. And so I think she's wondering, you know, what would we see if, the, if every single one of them was the target? So if somebody planned to come up there as a family annihilation attack and kill all three of them, it may look very much the same. Uh, see, I, and this is the one big area where Jim and I disagree on is I see hesitation with Becky, where I don't see that 
with John or Vicky. You know, again, crime scenes destroyed. There's a lot we could, you know, we might not know. Zach pointed out earlier that one could have been killed and then the other one caught and grabbed. You know, there could have been a difference of time. But it appears to be just a very, you know, John is blasted twice with a shotgun. Vicky's got a gun pushed against her head and, and the trigger pulled. But Becky's able to escape. We have two offenders. If my scenario is right, right? If Becky is, if Becky is the interruption, you have two offenders with guns that they're not afraid to use. I, how does Becky get seventy feet away from the house? Mm. You know, what I mean, it, it's it, to me. There's there's an indication of surprise. There's an indication of hesitation that she wasn't part of the plan. Uh, she was able to escape for a little ways because it wasn't the intention to kill her, but then they kind of had to, that's just my, my interpretation of the thing. So, so the fact that she's remote, I think if, if, if all three were the, was that, that was the intention that, that it would be cleaner, you know, that they would come in and just kill all three of them. But I don't think that it would, a plan like that would have been carried out at a time when Becky's supposed to be at work or she's going to work, uh, in the, Evening time when it's a lot, you know, this crime, to be honest with you, would have been easier to get away with in the daylight. Mm. You know, the, the, the fact that it's so dark is I think why people saw the fire so quickly because it's so pitch black up there that it's dead quiet. And still, if it was during the daytime, they probably could have got away with it and got away without anybody noticing. Nobody's looking for cars on the road in the daylight. Nobody might not notice a fire off in the distance when the sun's blaring down. Mm. So. That sounds like an unsophisticated planner then in some ways, because you just, we all think yeah. of, you know, well, I'll do it in the dead of night, of course. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a good point. You know, they, I, I think that they took steps to try to, which again, points to an interruption. You know, they took steps to set the fire in such a way that it would give them time to escape. I think we both, Jim and I both agree also that there probably wasn't a car there that they probably were part, they probably left on foot, you know, so they thought that part through and probably thought. We'll have time to kill them. We'll light these fires and we'll get out of here before we, you know, before anybody notices anything, but then Becky shows up. Yeah. I still have a hard time reconciling the, the idea that the perpetrators knew the response time of the fire department, because I feel like, and again, this is just my own opinion is that if I started a fire, I would assume that I would have time to get away before anybody would call regardless of where it was in my own opinion. Yeah. But see, that's, I don't think that's the norm. I, I've, I've fought that for years as a firefighter. We'd get a call on the station. You know, somebody called 911. We're out the door in 90 seconds flying down the road with, you know, running emergency and show up and they're screaming at you, what took you so long? As though we were just, you know, sitting in the truck watching for fires. Like we mm-hmm. got here as absolutely quick as we can. Tim Summerlee, when I interviewed him, you know, he told me that, you know, took seemed like took forever. Like we were waiting, like where the hell is the fire department? Cause we're waiting for 15, 20 minutes and he lived up there. So it was a, I think, I think generally in my experience and, and certainly you're, you're a proof that there's exceptions. Generally people think if I call nine one one and the fire department comes, they're going to be, especially cause the fire department's right at the end of the road. Well, see, and I was thinking about it as the perpetrator. Uh-huh. I, if I go into your house today uh-huh. and light a fire, I feel like I would have time to get in my truck and be gone before there was any sort of response before anybody had time to call nine one one right and get there. That's my opinion. Yeah, because I think I could get there before or get out before anybody called nine one. Not the actual response time from nine one one to gotcha to their arrival. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I just, I can't see that they actually believe, you know, I mean, there, there could be evidence that they are sophisticated and knew what they were doing, but I could also see that they are unsophisticated because I would consider myself very unsophisticated mm-hmm. at anything like that. Yeah. And that's, I would still think I would have time to get away. I'm trying to think through that scenario. So like you just mentioned my house. So I live at the end of a half mile long private road. Mm-hmm. So th- there are some similarities in the fact that you would have to drive past the other four houses here mm-hmm. down this one road that would probably see you leaving, but also you'd be to the end of the road in one minute compared to this one where they have a similar setup where they're at the back and there's only one way out, mm-hmm. a couple different options to get to the one way out, but really only one way out, but it takes 15 minutes to get past all that in the dark. I, it, you could be right. I just, I, I think someone could, someone especially, and that's one of the reasons I lean towards like law enforcement, fire department, something like that. Someone who's from the area that knows it's going to be, I'll have time to set this fire and be completely out of the neighborhood before the fire department gets even close to here. No one's going to, I'll be gone before anybody's looking for a car to leave. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I just want to shout out uh, Christy really quickly in the YouTube chat. I think this is a really good thing to touch on. I know we're running a little long, um, but I think we're in pretty good shape because we just have a couple of more questions we want to hit after this. Um, Christy revisits the whole idea of no one hearing gunshots. And the reason I want to bring it up here is that we just hear in this conversation with Jim, you spending great time and care because it's his question about how audible the fire trucks would be. Could they hear the sirens? So I just want to pin down with you. Is it weird that no one heard them? Does that tell us anything about when it could have happened based on people's schedules and not hearing anything? And does how do you feel about that with respect to would people hear sirens, et cetera? Someone wrote in um, through the, our email and they they mentioned they, they lived in a similar area up there in like not in Pinion Pines, but I think one of like a neighboring similar community. And they said that they would only notice gunshots if they were at a weird time because it's a rural and remote. It's not a strange thing to hear gunshots, but then they also said that, but a gunshot at night would be that weird thing. Now you have the closest house to them to the West is, I don't know. It's probably five, 600 yards away. And there's some brush and stuff between there. The shots that are fired inside the house. I think it's possible that they're, Maybe not that they wouldn't hear them, but if but if they're inside their house with the doors closed and the gunshots are fired inside another house from that distance, that they may not be recognizable mm. as gunshots. 
But then there's a possibility of if Becky was shot outside. But uh, no one that reported reported hearing gunshots or taking note of them. But I, I, I guess I would just say that that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't hear the report of the gun. Maybe just that they didn't identify it as a gunshot or didn't get their attention enough because of the the distance, the terrain. They're in their house. You know, there, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why that sound would be muffled. Right. Okay. Um, John, you had a great question. I just want to shout you out. You question about Becky running into the desert. I do feel like we've covered that earlier, just incidentally, about why she would run and where mm-hmm. her car was located. Um, and then, Laura, we have some questions from you about Becky and confiding in Robert's mom and um, some more stuff with, with sort of Becky and the forensic evidence. I think the mom stuff, uh, Robert's mom, any, anything like that, I feel like we should save for a future episode. Is that is that fair? Because it's not so much about this episode with Jim. Yeah, I did include that one just because I wanted to clear something up. When I said that that Becky had confided in her ex's mom, who had said that she was crying mm-hmm. about uh, the phone call she received, and that wasn't Robert. Right. That was, I think, I think his name was Alex. Right. So there was Robert. There was at least Robert, Alex. And then Jacob. I don't know if there's any other boyfriends in between there, but it was it was Alex. It was his mom. Right. Okay. Uh, I just want to go to Emmett's question really quickly. Uh, Repeating my question from last week in the crime scene episode, you said something about there being either a spent slug or casing found outside that looked older and thus unrelated to the crime. How far was it from the house and the wheelbarrow? What caliber was it? How can we be sure this wasn't the bullet that killed Becky? Can't be 100 percent sure. Uh, I believe the photo of it was in the crime scene photos that were uploaded in that episode. It's it's just a shell casing. So the part that holds the gun, but the part that's left over after the bullets fired. And uh, it's not documented what the caliber is by looking at it. I think it's like a 357 Magnum. I have to have you look at it. Exactly. It, it's a long shell. It's a Magnum of some kind. Mm-hmm. Possible. It's a 44 Mag, but it doesn't look that big to me. But it's, it's definitely not like a forty caliber, which was what was used, which would be a shorter casing that was what was used on Bicky inside the house. It's only like three feet away from the wheelbarrow, but it's in the photos. It's like there's dirt in it. It's it's corroded. It it looks as though it's been there for a significant amount of time. Okay. Um, and that was the officers that that was their determination. You know, and I didn't look. They they were able to look closely at it. They may have been you know, indications of oxidation on it, but, but it, they said it looked like it was been there for a long time. And when I looked at it, it looked, I agreed with them. It didn't look like it was anything related to the crime. Okay. Um, and then finally, uh, Laura, uh, we've had a, a conversation in past follow-ups about perhaps any evidence of sexual assault taking place with, um, Becky. And so I think she just wanted to circle back and talk forensically for a moment about, whether you could even determine determine something like that based on her condition. It's another way, you know, the, the, it's just, it's it, similar to the strangulation. There are telltale signs of rape that are not always present when there's a rape, you know, physically in the body. In Becky's case, that area of her body was pretty well preserved. It didn't burn a lot. It had, it had underwear and jeans over it. It, it was preserved well enough that they were able to be examined. So hold on, just to just to clarify, you are saying when you said that they are there's evidence of rape occurring, you are saying in general and not it wasn't present on Becky. Great, yeah, just just in general, it, it's it's possible. So it, leaving the, the the possibility open, so like there'll be 
you know, you'll you'll see like an autopsies where they might see like bruising or tearing or bleeding things like that. None of that was was present on Becky, but there are also other t- instances of rape where that wasn't present either. So that's still a possibility. The examination of her genitalia came. They said that it was just unremarkable, that there was nothing indicating that there was any kind of issue there. She's also wearing again underwear jeans that are zipped up and buttoned so it's all signs point to there wasn't rape if she was raped she was done so in a way that didn't leave any kind of injury or any indication to the medical examiner that that had occurred and then also just practically speaking that would mean that after the rape she was you know underwear back on jeans back on buttoned up zipped up which again is not is not i'm not saying that's impossible to happen but it's not is there's nothing we can point to to say well there's an indication that there could have been a rape because there's just there's just no evidence to support that that being said as with anything there's still always a remote possibility of it, but that certainly does not appear to have been the motive. Okay. I don't want to end on that note because it makes me sad. So I'm just going to say just to sum up um, one last thing that came up for me with your conversation with Jim was this ongoing question about the the John and what if, what, where was the money going? Um, It's just a fascinating aspect that continues to be a bit of a mystery. Yeah. I, it's hard to tell because he dealt in, Cash for the most part, you know, he cashed his paychecks. You know, we have bank records for Vicky, but not for John. We don't, you know, he was paying his ex-wife after they gave him the ten thousand dollars. He was paying her. I think she said three hundred eighty-eight dollars a month or something uh, for back child support. He did have tax liens. You know, he had some issues, but we don't know if he was paying those or not. It's possible the money if he was starting to try to catch stuff up. It was doing so with, you know, and I'm not, I'm not super familiar with this because I don't live that way, but some people do where if they don't have a bank account where they would take, I was a guy I used to work with when I did construction. If he didn't have a bank account, he would cash his checks and then he would go get, go buy money orders to pay his bills. So it's possible he was doing that and maybe the money's accounted for. Uh, we just don't know. So it's possible he wasn't really, we've said like bleeding money. Maybe he was, maybe he was trying to catch some things up and we just don't have the records to show that. Um, but we just, we just definitely don't have any indication that they were just rolling in money. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's leave it there. I'm taking some snapshots of a conversation that I think we can push into future episodes in terms of suspects and behavior and stuff. Um, I don't think I have anything else. Zach, do you have anything you want to add? I think that's all I've got for today. All right. One, one thing I do, I, I will address one last thing on YouTube um, that uh, Valerius is, why would Vicky have remortgaged the house? That could be for any number of reasons. It could be, you know, I remortgaged my house a couple years ago because the interest rates were down lower. And if you look at 2006, that was about the, that was before the big housing market crash when the you know the subprime loans were coming out banks were competing to try to get more mortgages so interest rates were down at the time so if she got her mortgage in the 90s for 7 8% which was common then and then in 2006 was able to get it for 3.5% that could have been the reason why why it was refinanced we don't know but with that being said uh, thank you guys all for everybody in the YouTube chat for participating 
<laughs> there's there are things happening behind you, Janet. And with that said, we try to uh, we try to uh, to condense them into enough to keep it under an hour, which we very rarely succeed in doing. Uh, but thank you guys, and, and again, thank you guys all so much for uh, purchasing the the t-shirts. You know, that's I, I, I spoke with Lori, Damien's wife, a couple days ago, and they're just thrilled. They were worried about paying for this expert witness and how they were going to come up with the money to do it. And as always, the Truth and Justice Army has come through in a bigger way than we ever expected. And uh, I think we're already a, a couple grand into paying for DNA testing, which hopefully will get approved here on the 23rd. That being said, I'll talk to you guys all next week. Make sure you tune in Sunday for a final part of my conversation with Jim Clementi. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24/7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver, and I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. I know I have my opinions. Janet, I'm sure you have your opinions as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. And we also, uh, also have a wonderful... <laughs> <laughs>
I sure do have thoughts. This week our cruise will be this this week on the cruise will be sa- sailing to the beautiful Bahamas. Oh. Here's your bloopers, Kelly. My bad, Janet. Well, Janet shit the bed on the whole thing. I mean, she- I absolutely shit the bed. <laughs> absolutely shit it. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes Only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 